the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. I'm joined now by Alexander Ward. Alex has written the brand-new book, The Internationalist, that I've been telling you about. Hello, Alex. Welcome. It's good to have you. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, you. Happy to be here with you. Uh, good, good to have you on Book Week. I'm going to start with an open-ended question. This book is primarily the first two years of the, of the Biden administration. What is the greatest foreign policy accomplishment of the Biden administration, having had the access you were given, that you come up with in the first two years of his presidency? I think what they would say, uh, and again, this book is more just an exploration as to how the administration has conducted this foreign policy and how they think of it. I think they would say two things. One, the fact that allies are more on board with the U.S. than perhaps in the Trump administration. Uh, they worked really hard. They felt that Trump went too far into America first, meaning America alone. Again, that's their formulation. And so by getting more allies involved in the defense of Ukraine, et cetera, uh, they would see as a strong win. On top of that, they would also probably say Ukraine, right, even though Putin did invade. Uh, and we cannot deny that. They would say that the fact that they got allies on board, that they uh, prepared sanctions together, they got Nord Stream canceled by Germany, et cetera, et cetera, and that they boosted Ukraine's defenses uh, to the point that even though the Ukrainians deserve all the credit for fighting for their own lives, uh, that they got the support economically, militarily they needed, and they would consider that a win. So I think those are the two that if if they were here and not me, uh, that they would point out. All right. So I, I wanted to start open ended. Uh, now I want to go through the big four that you discuss. And you were obviously given extraordinary access, Alex. Is it fair to say that you talked to the, the president, the secretary of state, Jake Sullivan, lots of people off the record, but these people on the record occasionally? Uh, I, I wouldn't say extraordinary. And, uh, and I you don't reveal sources, but I can tell you for sure I did not talk to the president. OK, well, you quote the president a lot. That That's what I'll put it at. Um there are three enormous fiascos I want to talk with you about. Afghanistan, the failure to deter Russia from invading, and the 2021 ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. It's a funny place to start, but given, given that we are in the middle of a war there, I want to start there. Um, you quote the Metternich of MSNBC, Ben Rhodes, as saying that progressives deserve a little credit for the ceasefire of 2021. Biden was looking over his left shoulder and told Netanyahu, you have to move on this. What do you think about that now? Was it a good idea to move on it then with Hamas that led to 10-7? Did we let them off easy by going hard on Israel in 2021? Well, their thought really was, look, they wanted just to end the fighting more than anything else. It wasn't about a destruction of Hamas. It wasn't about uh, necessarily being pro-Israel, their real belief was support them, support Israel as much as possible in public, push them in private. And in their minds, they said, look, ending the war in 11 days was better than not. And looking, looking forward to now, they tried that exact same playbook. Of course, uh, it didn't work out uh, for many reasons. Israel, of course, after that brutal, horrific October 7th attack, 
uh, has the right to defend itself in the Biden administration's mind and is going for the win here. Um, of course, you do see the Biden team in private go, hey, it's time to you know calm this down. Maybe don't think about going into Rafa uh, without this a nebulous civilian protection plan that no one really knows what that means or, or is. Uh, but that's how they see things. Uh, and sure, you're, you're, anyone's welcome to criticize the Biden administration for not seizing that opportunity uh, and letting Israel go in and defeat Hamas. But in this case, what the Biden team really wanted was to park the Israeli-Palestinian issue to the side so they could focus in their minds on bigger things like China and Russia. But he also, um, they come to the recognition that They've lost their own party when it comes to Israel. I'm going to take a short break for our radio affiliates. Come back and talk with Alex Ward about his brand new book, The Internationalist. During the break, we'll be back on the radio and then more afterwards for the podcast. And tomorrow, don't go anywhere, America. I'm talking with Alex Ward about The Internationalist. Stay tuned. I'm back now with Alexander Ward. This will play on the podcast. I'll use it tomorrow as well. The author of The Internationalist. Alex, uh, on page 99. Something had clearly changed. The White House could no longer count on Democrats supporting their policy in Israel. You wrote this before 10-7. I'm sure this book went to press before 10-7. You see that same dynamic unfolding right now? Yes. Uh, and to the quote you mentioned earlier from, from Ben Rhodes, I mean, the way he thought about it, this is being Ben Rhodes, was if the progressives put pressure on Israel and the Biden administration, then Biden worried about his left flank would be harder on Israel to make some sort of uh, concessions too strong, but to, to stop the fighting against Hamas. Um, in this case, you're just, again, you're seeing that similar playbook from progressives. They feel that if they can pressure Biden enough, that he might actually make some sort of move to get Israel to stop the war uh, before perhaps the, the Israeli government would like to stop it. So, um, you know, in this case, I think you're, yes, I think there's a clear indication that there are a lot of people on the Democratic Party and in Congress who are Democrats who uh, are not as um, go- who are not as excited about Israel doing what it's doing in Hamas and uh, against Hamas, and so in this this case, uh, what you're seeing is yeah, there is a there is a concern from Team Biden on this, and there's definitely. And when I talk to Israeli officials, they note this. They note that the, it's the Democratic Party more than the Republican Party that seems to be more skeptical and more critical of Israeli military operations. So what I'm getting to, Alex, did you see any reality in your reporting? It's a very well reported book. That the people inside the White House right now understood Hamas, that Hamas was fanatical, that they would do anything like 10-7. Was there any awareness? Is there any awareness in the White House of just how crazy this group is? Yes, I think there is. But again, they made the strategic decision uh, to park the issue. They really felt that. I mean, you remember Jake Sullivan shortly before October 7th said the Middle East is as quiet uh, as he's seen it in a while. That's how they felt it was. They thought that this was an issue that really could be on the back burner. Um, and we should note that, of course, the Israelis have been open, uh, that they were watching what Hamas was up to for about a year and the training and all that, and that they had the intelligence, but they didn't act on it because they didn't think Hamas would actually pull off an October 7th style um, attack. And then, of course, the Americans said, look, the Israelis didn't give us this information. So that's on them. Uh, so, look, I, I think that the, when you talk to the Biden administration, they admit Sure. Maybe we should have probably done more. And in fact, now they're somewhat backpedaling and saying we were doing tons of stuff for the Palestinians beforehand. Of course we were. And we were focused on this. This is part of, of course, as you know, Hugh, the Israel-Saudi normalization deal. And there would be some sort of pathway for Palestinians as a part of it. Uh, but but no, I mean, no one I, I don't anyone. No one expected in Israel or the U.S. the October 7th attack to go as it did. There's no question about that. 
And I think that that the surprise is clearly it's not manifested in the internationalists. You've wrapped it up before then. But given how they handled Hamas Israel 2021, I am not surprised that they were surprised. But then again, so is Netanyahu. I'll be right back with Alex Ward. We're talking about the internationalists going back on the network. Stay tuned, America, while we take about a 30 second break. The internationalists available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, every bookstore near you, every airport around there. Go and check it out. Welcome back, America. Alex Ward is my guest. He's the author of The Internationalist, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump. Now, look, don't be put off by the subtitle. It's not up to Alex to come up with the subtitle. They're trying to sell books, so they have to put the name Trump in there. This is a very good fly-on-the-wall observation of what Team Biden thinks about itself. But, um, Alex, this is the first time you've been on the show, right? It is, yes. I didn't didn't ask you the first two questions, which I ask every first-time guest. Was Alger Hiss a communist spy? Sure. <laughs> you're sure about that? You're, you're a yes? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm a stronger yes than I am a no. All right. That's the first time we've gotten that one. And have you read The Looming Tower by Lawrence Wright? Yes. It's one of my favorite books, and it's right behind me somewhere here. All right. So you got one and a half out of two. That's great. Let's go back to this. One of my takeaways from the internationalists, and I read every word, and I have five pages of notes, and we're going to go long here, Alex, is that the Biden era intel is at least as bad as any intel of any president in recent times. We got W and WMD in Iraq, but here we've got they didn't foresee the collapse of Afghanistan. They did not see the invasion of Ukraine early enough. They were arguing about sending $200 million in lethal aid in 2021 rather than the $54 billion they sent in 2022. Milley thought that Kiev would fall in 72 hours, and Milley is the fall guy along with Lloyd Austin for closing Bagram. Uh, What about that? Does anyone think that maybe their intel is broken over there? Well, you might remember that CIA Director Bill Burns, after the fall of Kabul, said that one of the things that the the intelligence community needed to do was particularly look at the will of fighters. Uh, one of the things they thought that you know the Afghan military that we'd been training for 20 years, they had the capability, uh, that they had the, the training, and yet they didn't have a government to fight for. And they completely misread that. Uh, on the Millie point of 72 hours, you know, it, they fought me a lot on this, uh, they being the administration. What they would say is the 72-hour estimation was just one of multiple. Uh, but it was one that was briefed and one that was clearly made aware to the team when they were thinking about what was going to happen with Keith. And look, a lot of assumptions were made based on the intelligence they had at the time and maybe that they should have questioned. One of the ones I questioned the most uh, when they made the decision to leave Afghanistan, that they thought it would be 18 to 24 months before the Taliban would be back in charge of Afghanistan. That timeline, of course, shrunk dramatically. Um, well, well uh, Alex, was- but do, do you actually think they want to blame Millie for this stuff? Because Millie and Austin get rolled on Bagram. I mean, that's the, I thought the headline of your book is it ought to be said. Millie and Austin closed Bagram without consulting White House, and Millie proposed that Kiev would fall in 72 hours. Someone decided to roll Millie under the bus and then back it up a few times, and Lloyd Austin got tossed in there as well. Yeah, look, the military's refrain during all this was speed is safety, right? And they felt that the military needed to go out as quickly as possible and that they thought they should close Bagram. You had Jake Sullivan go, really? Are you sure about that? Does that make sense? And and others would say that, not just Jake, but I I have Jake in the book uh, asking them about it. And you had Millie in in Austin go, well, 
it doesn't make much sense to protect it. It would require a lot of troops around it. There's a whole bunch of systems to maintain. So if we're going to protect the airport and do uh, an airlift, we need to protect the airport and do an airlift. Uh, they really, the, the Defense Department really didn't believe that Bagram made sense, and the White House agreed with that assessment. All right. I just, I just want people to know the headline is, we finally get to put a sticker on them because they did it. Now, I also want to ask you about the June 2021 summit with Biden that you recollect. First of all, Joe Biden is quoted as saying, I looked into your eyes and I don't believe you have a soul to Putin. And Putin respond, we understand each other. That's a verbatim exchange. Do you believe that exchange occurred, Alex? Uh, I think it's a bit more dramatic than it probably is. But of course, that's the uh, constant retelling we have from Biden himself and his team. Uh, and I have nothing to disprove it. But, it, you know, you're asking me. Yeah, I think it's a bit too made for TV, a bit made that, for Hollywood. That would be a no. I think you I don't do- believe it. Do, <laughs> do you believe the part about his father when he was six years old? leaning over to little Joey and saying Israel should exist because never again. Do you believe that part? I do, actually. Uh, I'm, I'm talked to a bunch of people who know, uh, you know, how Joe Biden's father thought and and how he handled politics. And sure, that is a big part of it. I mean, plus you hear Biden talk about it quite often. All right. Now we've got um, on page 119 at that summit. Putin admonished Putin, I mean, Biden admonished Putin that the administration wouldn't stay silent about Russia's abuses of human rights, including jailing Alex, Alexei Navalny. Last week, the president said he was outraged and that he was not surprised. So I guess he didn't expect Putin to take him seriously, Alex. Well, you might remember that after that summit, you had Biden say, well, you know, I, I listened to him, but whether I trust him or not, I, you know, I don't trust him. But no, it's clear that the Biden team left Geneva thinking that they had some sort of red line agreement with Putin, that they knew what the Biden administration's limits were, that they knew what what Biden would accept. And there was some you know, rhetorical high fiving uh, after Geneva. And clearly, in this case, if Putin felt deterred after that, perhaps for a little bit, but clearly not uh, based on the news. Yeah, I got to say, when I read that on page 120, Biden left the meeting telling his aides he got his message through to Putin. A senior staffer, quote, Biden had come to Geneva to do what he needed to do. Now he could put Putin, put Putin aside and deal with other issues. I said to myself, wow, they have no idea how they look in this book. Alex will be right back after the break for the podcast. And for tomorrow, don't go anywhere except Amazon and order the internationalists. There's more to talk about. And I'm going to do that with Alex Ward after the break. Stay tuned. I want to remind everyone, a great sponsor of the program is MyPhDWeightLoss.com. Generalissimo went on that program more than a year ago, lost 50 pounds. He's kept it off. And uh, stress eating is not allowed, I don't believe, even though we're under a lot of... Uh, sure uh, tempted uh, to this week, aren't we? Uh, everybody is. I, but, but we don't... I'm sure they give you tricks of the trade to combat that because that's one of the habits. You broke that habit. You're not going by Del Taco or Taco no. Bell. Have not. No. You haven't relapsed. Have not relapsed. And that um, is a, and it's healthy, it's wise, it's yes. productive. 864-644-1900. That's 864-644-1900. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. 
Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back, America. If you were listening to the program on Wednesday, I was talking with Alex Ward about his brand new book, The Internationalist. I had him stick around with me so that I could play that this morning. And in the last seven minutes of the show, as I run to the airport to go to Nashville. Uh, so we got a lot of Alex, but the book is very much interesting and very much worth your read. Um, let's go to the uh, Nordstrom 2. They didn't even tell Zelensky they were going to cave, Alex. Uh, Zelensky comes through as a very interesting figure in here. When he's on TV, sort of like Bibi talking about Biden, they won't say anything bad. But he's continually ticked off at the Americans in the Biden administration and it gets started when they don't tell him that he's approving Nord Stream 2 with uh, that Biden is approving Nord Stream 2. How often did you get a chance to talk to Zelensky? I did not talk to Zelensky for this book, but I talked to members of his team and others around his government. I mean, one of the highlights for me of the book is that we sort of knew the Biden Zelensky relationship was bad. We didn't know it was this bad. It's really uh, bad to the <laughs> really, really bad. Yeah. And uh, on top of that, there was a genuine feeling in Kiev. Uh, that the Biden administration was just more focused on Russia and could also put the Ukraine issue aside. Uh, it took a lot of lobbying from Kiev to get even just a Biden-Zelensky meeting. And look, Biden at the beginning kind of thought, look, this guy, you know, he's new. He's a stand-up comedian. His approval ratings are low. You know, how seriously do I need to take him? Of course, nothing sharpens the mind for both Biden and, and Zelensky uh, than an invasion. And then that, once that happened. Oh, but Zelensky they, wanted to come. As you point out, he wanted to come. He didn't want to come in August. He wanted to come early or later. He wanted more than a couple of hundred million. They ended up getting 54 billion. This is an indictment of ill preparedness on the part of the White House and Team Biden when it comes to the invasion of of Ukraine. But before we get there, I got to ask you this. Are you still with me? I don't want you to freeze. Are you still there? Yep, I'm right here. Okay, great. Page 137. You're talking about Bo Biden and cancer. The Iraq war may not have directly killed Bo, but it may have contributed to his untimely passing in 2015 at the age of 46. All right. Bo Biden did a year, uh, Alex, in Iraq from 2008 to 2009. Honorable service. He is much loved by Democrats and Republicans alike in the attorney general's groups. He was seven months in a combat zone, but, but he left in 2009. He was diagnosed with geoblastoma in 2013. Do you, Alex Ward, believe the Iraq service had anything to do with Bo Biden's geoblastoma? Uh, I'm not a doctor. I don't know. Um, I understand the timeline and I didn't talk to doctors for the book. I, I completely understand the skepticism that that, that had anything to do with it. Um, look, I, not to make this too personal, but, uh, you know, I have a father who passed of cancer. And so I'm one of the worst people ever. If someone is hurting because of that. Um, I'm usually one of the worst people to, to ward off of that. Uh, it's, if that's how the, the president believes what happened to his son, every person has to grieve in their own way in a situation that horrible. I, I don't know if the president gets to do that, Alex. I don't think you get to make national security uh, decisions based upon 
what someone ought to tell him is at best approximate cause stretch. And I lost a parent to cancer, too, and it is unpleasant. And losing a child would be even more traumatic. But this enters into your book, so I'm just reading it back to you. It gets crazy when he does this. You do write the end of the war in Afghanistan was to be a crowning achievement. It was threatening to be a noose around the presidency. And then on page 190, and boy, is this, Alex, I'm surprised anyone's talking to you at the White House. There never was any serious reckoning inside the administration. Biden told his top aide, Sullivan included, that he stood by them and they had done their best during doing a tough situation. They had served America and America's nobly and their jobs were safe. There wasn't even a real possibility of a shakeup. I mean, aren't you surprised by that, Alex Ward? Yes, undoubtedly. Um, The only thing that mutes the surprise is that Biden went on TV, made speeches consistently, as we were seeing the scenes in Kabul, saying, I made the right decision, you know, don't question it. Uh, To the earlier question about Bo and whatever, and this will appeal to the, uh, this will uh, relate to this. I mean, yes, Bo was part of his thinking. But Biden wanted out from the moment he entered the presidency. And, I, and it was how he felt really in 2009 as well. So Bo may have contributed, but I don't think it was actually even the biggest factor. So when it comes to Afghanistan, in Biden's mind, this was the right call. He expected it to be messy. He didn't think anyone really messed up. I think the airlift, um, the fact that they got 120,000 people out, he was proud of that. There was, of course, people calling for folks to resign. But Biden is a fiercely loyal guy. He stood by everybody. And no one really thought that they had... They were, of course, upset by the scenes. They didn't. They wish it didn't happen. Some thought they could do better, but did they think it was a failure? No, and they still don't. You know, the uh, the parents of the 13 who died at Abbey Gate are allegedly getting organized for involvement in the 2024 race because the president has never said the names of the fallen at Abbey Gate. Did that come up in any of your conversations with anyone at the White House, why he will not do that? Not specifically that, but I was curious as someone who, you know, he said, you know, he carries the, the lists of names in his pocket and is constantly thinking about troops that have died in battle. You know, when you, he of course mentioned <laughs> mentioned the loss. He was upset about the loss, but I think there's a political issue here, right? That the more they mention the 13 service members, the more they somewhat admit uh, failure for what happened in Afghanistan. You know what the most arresting line in your book is, Jake? Page two nineteen. This wasn't. We're talking about uh, Ukraine now. Ukraine wasn't a do-over of Afghanistan. Nothing could be that. But this does help ensure that Afghanistan isn't the only thing this administration is remembered for. And it helps ensure that it won't be the only thing Jake and Tony are remembered for. This is during the long piece that you write about how hard it was to to work on Ukraine and how no one could. Some of the uh, colleagues were smelly. They're very self-absorbed and they're very aware of their legacy. And they don't want it to be Afghanistan. But really, Alex, it is Afghanistan. That's why Putin changed course, right? I think you wrote the ultimate geopolitical shark. Putin smelled blood in the water after the collapse in Afghanistan. Are you putting two to two together there? I, I, you know, I'm not in Putin's head. I don't like horror movies, Uh, but it's not it would not necessarily be a surprise if Putin thought this is a pretty weak moment for America. Maybe this is the time to make the call. Uh, to, to go forward. He was, of course, planning for that, though, we have to note, uh, long before uh, the Afghanistan fall. So there was, of course, the, the troops were put outside of Ukraine in April. He didn't go forward with it, but that was already in motion. But perhaps he made the go order after seeing somewhat the chaos of Afghanistan. And then the president uh, goes case, to the though, UN, as you point out, on page 
uh, close to 202. He goes to the General Assembly. He doesn't mention Ukraine. So if you're Putin and you're watching the General Assembly speech and you're thinking about Ukraine, you're not getting waved off by the president there. Dean Acheson, Press Club, 1950 stuff. No question. It was I was actually surprised. I looked back at that speech and, and figured there would be a line on Ukraine. Shocked that I couldn't find anything. You don't know how many times I hit control F uh, to, to search for Ukraine, thinking I maybe misspelled something. Yeah. Uh, no, it was just not on their radar at all. Uh, well, were, shockingly. You tell the story of Blinken meeting with Zelensky at the G20 and warning him that Ukraine's going to invade. And Zelensky says, if that's true, why aren't we getting a massive amount of aid? Where are the javelins and the stingers and more training? I mean, if you're Zelensky, would you believe him as well? They won't send you the st- $200 million. They wouldn't send them $200 million in aid. Yeah, I mean, look, Zelensky's intelligence, Ukraine's intelligence didn't signal that Russia was going to do this. You had Europeans who were skeptical, really the only ones saying that this was going to happen were the Americans and the Brits. And the Americans weren't mobilizing full throttle to arm Ukraine. So if you were Zelensky, you were thinking maybe this isn't that serious. Maybe they are overreacting to Afghanistan or you know, overreacting to Iraq or whatnot. And on top of that, Zelensky, you know, briefly, occasionally was thinking, hey, you guys got intelligence wrong on Iraq. Why not this? Uh, so for the critics who say the administration should have sanctioned Putin uh, before the invasion, should have sent weapons before the invasion, you know, anyone can debate whether or not that was wise. But Zelensky, for sure, thought that the fact that the U.S. wasn't mobilizing full throttle was a sign that maybe the U.S. was overreacting. And he also thought, with, with good reason, that he would need whatever he eventually got, and it wasn't enough. I got to tell you another story that struck me, Alex. I don't know if other people have. I read the reviews. I haven't seen anyone bring this up. The last big NATO-Russia sit-down before Ukraine invades, uh, Russia invades Ukraine, we send the one and only Wendy Sherman, who negotiated the Iran deal, and before that she negotiated the North Korea deal in 1994. Wendy Sherman has been around every foreign policy disaster over the last three years. And she tells the Russians about her family fleeing Ukraine, and there are tears in her eyes. The Russians aren't even paying attention to her. I mean, I find this riveting. This is great reporting, page 243. And she has to stop and demand they pay attention to her moving story. How do you think that that got back to Putin, Alex? It's a great question. I was more interested in how the Europeans saw it. I think they thought, oh, look, the, the Americans are really serious about this. That was one of the turning points for why the Europeans were thinking that maybe the U.S. was on to something. Uh, but if you're the Russians... Maybe you're thinking, look, this is perhaps, uh, uh, you know, an American official who's really out, uh, you know, out for blood here. Or maybe, you know, maybe that looks weak in a meeting to have it this be this sort of impassioned speech. I can't tell you, again, what was going on inside the Kremlin there. Uh, but it was a moment, especially for, for European officials to go, OK, maybe this is uh, more than than we think it is. Okay, I'm going to come back to Ukraine in just a moment, but I got to cover one thing with you because I checked it out. You quote Mr. McCoy, who is um, six years a Marine. I salute him for that. But he's a man of the left. I think you recognize that. And he was on the phone a lot during the Afghan debacle. And he was mad that that the Biden people were not getting out the SIV and the SIV eligible Afghans. And he was right to be mad about that. And in your book is the line, quote, he understood. McCoy understood the Trump administration had abandoned the SIV program, leaving Biden's team to rebuild it in a stressful time. Uh, that's on page 137. Uh, Secretary Pompeo has assured me explicitly since I read that to him that that is not true. Mary Kissel confirmed it on the show this morning. The SIV program was fine and was working. Team Biden broke it. 
did you get any any pushback at all? Because McCoy's an activist of the left. So I explained he's a member of the Democratic Socialist Party of America. My goodness, the guy's way left. But it's a slander on Pompeo and everyone at the SIV program. They hadn't abandoned it. Well, it depends what you mean by abandoned. Abandoned in the, the sense that it, the program ended? No. But the numbers and the processing was way, way, way down. It was down from historical norms. Uh, they did not uh, ramp up that program tremendously. As you can imagine, the, the Trump administration was not particularly um, excited about allowing uh, you know, foreign folks necessarily into the U.S. through that uh, through that pathway, they were also worried about whether there could be ties to the Taliban or, or Al Qaeda or anything else. So it's not like the program was ended, but it was significantly uh, understaffed, and there were under there was uh, a lack of processing. It ramped up a lot more uh, slowly at first, but a lot more under Biden. So uh, you maybe know, I, you, I, I'm going to push with, back on that, um, Alex. Uh, everybody I've talked yeah. to about this: Tom Tillis, Tom Cotton. Uh, Mike Gallagher, Michael Waltz, the members of Congress who served, some of whom served in Afghanistan, who helped get people out. Tom Tillis didn't, obviously, but Tillis was very instrumental. They blast the State Department again and again and again. The Biden State Department, not the Pompeo State Department. Biden came in in January of 2021. This is August of 2021 when this is happening as a complete malfunctioning group of bureaucrats who, in fact, would pack up and leave their tables at the gates at 5 p.m. Did you hear any of that? Did you read any of that? Well, Hugh, as, as in the book, I point out one of the reasons the administration slow rolled the, the evacuation or didn't prepare as well as they could have was because they thought the intelligence of 18 to 24 months, they thought they had two years. So even though they wanted to fix the SIV program, they didn't do it at a high speed. And so what happened here is because you had uh, the Trump years have it be low and, and slow, you had the Biden team try to fix it at a slower clip than they should have. And so I, I actually, the book faults both administrations, not just Trump and not just that Biden's team came in and, and really tried to ramp it up. They did it. Uh, that is one of the failures. Yeah, uh, they're, they, they're Afghanistan their, legacy. I, I want to go back to that quote on uh, uh, from the book because I think it's so important. And it helps. Ukraine helps ensure that it, Afghanistan won't be the only thing Jake and Tony are remembered for. It, when you heard that, what did you think, Alex? That's like an admission that you're just running for cover from history. Yes, <laughs> there's no sugarcoating that. Uh, they really didn't want Afghanistan to be the legacy of the Biden administration. And, you know, unluckily for the world, but luckily for their politics and their messaging, uh, Ukraine comes along and they're able to right some of the wrongs uh, that they had. And in their mind, it was a relatively, uh, not excuse me, not relatively, it was a very good success. Of course, Putin does invade in the end. But they think they did about, there's a, a quote, I don't have it specifically in front of me, but almost verbatim, it is, you know, we did everything right, talking about Ukraine, we did everything right, and we still didn't get it right. You know, we still didn't oh, succeed. That's, so, I know they said time, that. They, but if you if you talk to Cotton about this, the, the problem with, Biden and Afghanistan is too little, too late, too long. And the reason that that convoy didn't get through were the javelins that Trump sent, not what Biden sent, because he was sitting on the aid. Let's go to after the invasion. And Alex, you cover this in a very detailed move. The United States removes all of its diplomats from Kiev to Lvov or Lviv. I can't say it. It's pronounced Lvov. It used to be now it's pronounced Lviv. Uh, a white flag move, if there ever was one. And it drives Zelensky crazy. Does anybody ever admit to you that was a mistake, that the United States looked and acted like it was over? 
No, because remember, we're still shortly, relatively, after Afghanistan, and they really wanted to protect uh, diplomats. There's also, as you well know, Hugh, for throughout many years, a bit of a Benghazi hangover that if any diplomat is lost uh, in a war zone, it, it can hurt uh, an administration. So there's, in this Biden scene mind between, of course, the, the Benghazi ghost and uh, what they saw in Afghanistan, they wanted to move it fast. And you're right. It drove Kiev and Zelensky nuts because there were other countries that weren't leaving. And there was a sense that this is an abandonment. Uh, that's how they saw it in Ukraine. And for the U.S. to do that uh, signal, maybe there wouldn't be that resolve and maybe Ukraine would be left on its own. Uh, there's no denying that that was uh, the predominant sense in Kiev at the time. You also write that Biden and his aides are stunned at the intransigence of Zelensky. Why do you think that is, Alex? I mean, not, not, not what they say, but why do you think they're stunned by his intransigence? I have my own view, and I trust your reporting on this. I do think they were stunned by Zelensky. I don't want uh, a ride. I need ammunition. You know, that was his famous line. Why do you think they were stunned? They Because the U.S. had presented them with... I think we could all agree, pretty specific, granular, clear intelligence of what was to come. And they were they was presented to the Ukrainians uh, you know, on multiple occasions. They were allowed to look it over, get a sense of, you know, get briefed on it, get a sense of uh, what what we knew. And the fact that Zelensky still said, no, 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 this isn't happening. There was a there was a confusion in Washington going, we're literally giving you all the warning, all the information you need. And yet he didn't think it would be true. And it, it was confusion in D.C. about how to get through to Zelensky. Um, Maybe really I read this wrong, Alex. I thought they were confused that he would not leave Kiev. Oh, excuse me. Well, that too. Uh, that's right. There was also that. There were, they were, you know, there was concern. Hey, can we get the guy out? Can we think of ways to get does, him out? Does anybody um, at the White House ever hear about going down with the ship? Nobody got fired after Afghanistan. Nobody quit. Nobody said it's my fault. Joe Biden said I did everything right. Now they've got a guy in Ukraine, Zelensky, who turns out, no matter what you think of him, they have courage by the bucket full, and they don't know what to do with a guy with courage. I, I mean, it's so clear to me as a critic of Biden, and you're just an observer. You're not a fanboy, but they, they don't understand that at all, how that looks, do they? I'm not, I, it's a fair critique. I mean, in, in Biden's team's mind, they thought, look, it's better to protect the leader of the country than not, because if Zelensky dies... Uh, then you could imagine Ukrainian morale and fighting morale would go down. Uh, so that was a the calculation they made at the time. Uh, Zelensky chose to stay, and unless we forget, he had that um, you know, almost rap battle type cell phone video with his team behind him, uh, which was uh, you know beamed around the world. It was a, a quite remarkable moment. And after that, I think you saw here in the Biden administration go, oh, you know, he's in this for the long haul. Now we got to find a way not only to protect him, uh, but to ensure that. You know, he can lead Ukraine through this uh, tough defense. So I've got one more question about the book, and then we've got to get ready my Spanish Inquisition music, Adam, because I'm going to do the Spanish Inquisition with Alex, who's still not sure about his. Um, page 276, after the invasion, Joe Biden comes out and he says, quote, every asset they have in America will be frozen. He's talking about the Russians. On page 276, every asset they have in America will be frozen. You immediately note the president was lying. That's not true. What wasn't frozen, Alex? Uh, just, a, I mean, of course, a lot of uh, oligarch, uh, oligarch money, uh, a lot of other money that they have in accounts around here. I can't be, you know, overly specific. Uh, and it's, it's a bit beyond my financial um, You mentioned their energy industry. 
You mentioned they're energy experts. Well, we're, I, not, we're not expropriated. No, that's true. And on top of that, I mean, the fact that we're having the debate now about what to do after Navalny, we're thinking, oh, maybe we'll do some oil export sanctions or we'll uh, close some loopholes or we'll do even more sanctions on the Russians and we'll take more of their stuff. And we're having conversations about Jim Risch's uh, uh, legislation for the Repo Act. Right. I mean, it's clear that there's a lot of space still here uh, for the United States to take against Russia. And so the notion that somehow the U.S. was going to go all in on punishing the Russians from the beginning uh, that didn't happen. And there was a decision made that they would have go up the escalation ladder on sanctions. Uh, one thing that surprised the Biden administration was how quickly the Europeans moved. And in fact, they went through all the sanctions they had prepared roughly in about a week, uh, which led a bunch of administration officials scrambling to go, wait, what what else do we need? What else? What else can we sanction? What else can we hit? Scrambling um, so is the word. Basically- I, I, I know that they don't read it this way because you got blurbs from people who think this is good for them. Uh, But boy, they sound to me like the Paw Patrol, not the Tiger team. They are always surprised. They are never on top of things and they get everything. I'm reminded of Robert Gates. Uh, Joe Biden hadn't gotten anything right in 40 years. It's now 50 years. Now I want to play, and by the way, I like the internationalist. I think it's extraordinarily well reported, but boy, I do not think it creates a good picture of team Biden and I'll be using it a lot in the campaign ahead. And I don't want Biden to get reelected. Can we cue the Spanish Inquisition? Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. All right, Alex Ward. Not only are you the author of The Internationalist, you are the co-author of Trump Allies Prepare to Infuse Christian Nationalism in Second Administration. This is your new article in Politico. Am I correct? That's correct. Can I enter that as Exhibit 1 without an objection from Alex? It is, it is accurate. It is the story I wrote. All right. What is Christian nationalism? Uh, the belief that the Christian faith should be as uh, strong a motivator infusing all kinds of uh, man-made law and governance, uh, not necessarily um, a belief that we should be a theocracy, but a belief that the re- the re- your one's religious belief should vastly inform and perhaps permeate throughout society of the country. Now, I've interviewed Tim Alexander about his book, interviewed John Ward about his book. I've had my long arguments with people who see Christian nationalists behind a bush. I go to churches on both coasts in Maine and Virginia and California. I've never met a Christian nationalist. They don't exist. I don't think Russ Vaught is a Christian nationalist. I just wonder, do you, re- do you really think Russ Vaught is a Christian nationalist? I mean, he's been saying it for years. He's saying that he is. He's written an article defending it and why it should lead our government. He has uh, close affiliates who are saying that they are Christian nationalists and saying what they would do based under that umbrella. Um, you're welcome to believe Russ Vaught has been lying for years, but we're just using the words that he's written. He wrote an op-ed all about why Christian nationalism should be uh, a defining characteristic. Of, but his definition is very different from the uh, hit the organ music in the background. And I wanted to especially tell you, I have never in my life heard of this guy that you quote a lot. Never in this in my life have I heard of this. Guy. I've been doing Republican politics since 1978, and I've never heard of this. Uh, is it White Wolf, Mr. Wolf? Wolf. And I'm not referring to Pulp yes. Fiction. I've never heard of him, and so I just I tend to think this may overestimate this. Alex, what is the reaction to your book Inside the White House? Uh, to be honest, I haven't heard much. Um, so, you know, I, 
they, the, the Afghanistan uh, excerpt that got out through Axios and, and made it around the waves uh, didn't lead to any backlash that I received in my inbox or, or phone. Uh, the excerpt that I had on Jake Sullivan and Politico didn't lead to much either. So either they're staying quiet about it, they're busy, or, you know, maybe I'll hear it from them later. But so far, or it's been maybe it's a little bit colder over in the West Wing, Alex. I, I think it's fabulous. I want people to read it because I don't think the president's going to get better at this going forward. And he wasn't very good at it in the first year. My personal subtitle would be The Internationalist. Neville Chamberlain is back and it still doesn't work. But I don't think you said you even considered that, did you? Uh, no, I will not say those exact words. No. <laughs> <laughs> Alex Ward, thank you for joining me. Come back. I enjoyed it. But read up on your Al, on your Alger Hiss. He's definitely a communist spy. Be well, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.